Hello, listeners. This is Chris Miller, co-host of your all-time favorite podcast, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you like what you hear and you want to lend your support, please go to patreon.com slash trrpod. And for as little as $1 a month, you can receive early access to new episodes as well as exclusive bonus content. That's right, it's a dollar. Come on, you have that much money right now in that weird little gap between your driver's seat and your center console. It's probably rattling around on the dryer right now. If you have a dog, there's a good chance that it has eaten that much change at least once in its life. So, for your beloved pet's sake, consider going to patreon.com slash trrpod and giving us that dollar instead. Your dog will thank you, and so will I. And now, on with the show. So they, uh, they've officially made OnlyFans non-dirty, and that's a problem, and I'll tell you why. Um... Now I don't know. I'm going to save so much money. I don't know. I, well, I don't know how. I I lost my best idea for how we're going to promote this podcast. This is big news for my wholesome OnlyFans that we talked about earlier. It's going to be like me learning to knit and shit. Yeah, now we have to completely shit can the idea of, of TRR after dark, and I'm upset about well, that. Well, it's still going to be an That's account what the of pussy. For. It's, it's all going to be pussy. It's just going to be my three cats. My, <laughs> welcome <laughs> to OnlyFans. I'm Rob North. These are my three co-hosts. Here's a move we like to call the baby elephant walk. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the sad part well, is, is even just went up five hundred percent. Even as a member, even even as the profit for the Bob Crane sex cult, I, over the last ten months, have actually had to trim up because she started my my, my wonderful fiance started referring to me as Dick Bin Laden. Mm. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's very timely. Afghanistan's very hot right now. I think my oh, brain just my brain just found it. Did you keep like sideburns or something? Yeah. Oh, of course. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Mutton chops. Ambrose Burnside. I was gonna say it looks like an old general. Yeah. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. Do we have a gun? Because I need to end this now. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll I'll save you the misery. Welcome back to Thieves, Ropes, and Renegades, everybody. After a very very long extended break. It's been a while since we've been here in the kitchen with the boys, talking history and drinking beers. But we're back. I'm Rob North. I'm your co-host, Chris Miller. I'm Kyle Graper. And I'm Michael Ernett. The Padre. And at some point in the episode, my dog's probably going to bite Rob again. Absolutely. He was in... Uh, he, he, was he almost in, knocked you off the chair in the last thing we were Yeah, doing. he really, really did. Um, so, today, we're getting into a... Uh, this is going to be the first episode in a series... And we are discussing a very, very key figure in history. We are discussing... This was Justin Timberlake, right? That's the one I did the research on. That's who we're doing. He was bringing uh, law back. Yeah. yeah. This... Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So we are talking about a guy named Justinian. Fuck. Yeah. Justinian is probably the most important dude that nobody knows about. Exactly. Damn. Yeah. I mean, you got to figure whenever... Even at, like, at the college level, it goes from like Julius Caesar... To Charlemagne, but there's everything else is just kind of glossed over. It's part I, of the I reason have, we want to talk about a, it. Uh, I have a University of Pittsburgh textbook in front of me, and there are exactly seven pages of Justinian in the history of the Church in the Middle Ages. And he's yeah. kind of a key figure in that. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. I mean, I know for all of us, in at least in a high school level, our world history classes were fall of Rome, Normans invade Britain. Even if you even got that, yeah, right. That's six centuries. I mean, most of our world history starts with, like, the American Revolution, yeah. which is very telling. Well, it tells you all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so today we begin our series on the Byzantine Emperor Justinian I. 
Now, seen as the last of the true Roman emperors, this 6th uh, this sixth century monarch was a remarkable figure from an unlikely background who came to power in one of the greatest periods of flux in world history. And his reign is heavily characterized not just by his virtues and flaws, as are those of most monarchs, but by the mind-boggling world events that took place during his lifetime. I mean, this is set... This is not just going to be the story of a man. This is going to be the story of not just one, but two global cataclysms set against his life and his rule. We've used the Forrest Gump uh, parallel a lot. He's the opposite of mm-hmm. that. He is the force for these these changes in yeah. history. He doesn't luck into them. No. He enacts them. Well, I mean, aside from you know some fairly unfortunate things that happened during... Uh, Justinian's era. Which are, in his defense, utterly out of his control. Mm -hmm. Now, his response to some of those things, well, we'll get into that. But, yeah, it's so, yeah, so we're telling a story from the Dark Ages today. I think this is the furthest back we've ever gone historically. Probably. I think so. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, this is the furthest back we've ever gone, 15 centuries. And, of course, the... Which is weird, because we have a lot more written information about this guy than some of the contemporaries. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, the Dark Ages, I think, is a massive misnomer. Because... There's so much shit happened. Yeah. But, so, well, so much happened. But there's a happened. reason why it's called the Dark Ages. Yeah. And it's just because of who was continuing to write the history about it. That's yes. true. And, and there is this, this misapprehension that this is a period of just a bunch of crazy idiots running around in horde helmets covered in dirt hitting each other with axes. I know Which guys did, did exist. exist. There, was, yeah. there, was, there was a bit of that. Yeah. There was a bit of that. There we'll was the that, Visigoths. But, yeah, Germany was yeah. very, very busy with it. And then, you know, a lot of Italy. Well, there was the Visigoths. <laughs> there was the Visigoths at first. And then they kind of chilled out, right. as did pretty much everybody else. But we will get to that. that yeah, that's something I was – we'll talk about that later. Yeah. There's something weird that happens with the Eastern <laughs> Ro- or the Western Roman Empire. So – uh, before we get into our story today, as we always want to do, we want to give honor to our sources that we use in this uh, in this series. Uh, the first source that we uh, that I've been using is Justinian the Great: The Life and Legacy of the Byzantine's Greatest Emperor by Charles Rivers. We also have Lost to the West: The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization by a guy named Lars Brownworth. Now, I, I do have one issue with this source in that it does kind of portray the kind of post-Roman barbarian kingdoms in the wrong light, really. It kind of misrepresents them, in, in, in my opinion. However, its, its narrative regarding Justinian's actions and his campaigns is accurate. It's very well laid out, and it actually turned out to be a very good source for that part of our story. Uh, we also have The Glittering Horn, Memoirs of the Court of Justinian by Pearson Dixon. Uh, we have my personal favorite source out of all the ones I used. Uh, we didn't, we're not going to use it much in the first part, but in part two of the series, it's, it's where it really comes in. It's called Justinian's Flea by William Rosen. And yeah, you'll, you'll understand why it plays into the second part soon. We also have Catastrophe, an investigation into the disastrous origins of the modern world by David Keyes. Then we get into the contemporary sources. We have The Secret History by Procopius of Caesarea. We also have The Chronicle by a guy named John Malalas, and The Ecclesiastical History by Evagrius Scholasticus. If you can't tell by most of these names, these are all 6th century chroniclers who were all there to actually witness these goings-on, some of whom were actually... The term friends is going to be loose, but associated directly with Justinian. So, gentlemen, before we begin... I mean, these guys weren't just his contemporaries. He fucking knew them. Yeah. 
which is exceptional because we don't often get this, especially in this time period. No, we don't. Uh, the, the amount only, of first-hand resources we have for him is tremendous. I, I mean, the only time that we had somebody having like personal correspondence with something that happened, I mean, this was in the 1700s, so it's a there's a, a bit of a difference between the 18th century and the sixth, a little bit. But uh, was whenever like the origins of Robinson Crusoe. Mm-hmm. It was they were actual interviews with Alexander Selkirk. Yeah, yeah. So, anything else for the good of the order, gents? Before we proceed with the story, have at it. We've got a, we've got a lot to take in. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. so much information regarding this dude, and I, I I want to warn you, dear listener, that it might sound like we're glossing over things, but this guy did so much shit that, that like some of the things that are so important aren't that important to the story. Yeah, <laughs> this is the Cliff's Notes version of. We're, we're going of to Justinian. tell you that he did something. And then we're just going to go on to the next thing because he did something even more important. Well, if, if we got into the, the nitty-gritty of every detail of the story of Justinian, we'd all be sitting in this kitchen for weeks. This would exactly. now just be a Justinian podcast. Yeah, it really would. This would put... There, there are multiple Justinian podcasts, and they're very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use them mostly for my, my next stuff, so we'll, we'll cite those in the next episode. This would put our mentor, Dan Carlin, to shame with the amount of information, just the yeah. sheer information that we have about this guy. Now, I'm not sure I have any any quotes uh, that would fit in this episode, but definitely in the next episode, I have a quote. I will do honor to it. I will give you my best Dan Carlin. But that's to come. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. So, <laughs> uh, we're all familiar with the idea of Schrodinger's cat, that famed feline that is both alive and dead. The illustration of how an object, when unobserved, can, be, can potentially exist in multiple quantum states at the same time. Now, an exception to this, an observed thing that is both alive and dead at the same time is the Roman Empire of the early 6th century. It's seen as a past relic condemned to the historical ash heap, ripped asunder by the predations of barbarian invaders, a ruined wasteland where a traumatized populace emerged blinking into a world without the comforting mechanisms of imperial rule. Now, in the West, that was indeed the case. Sort of. In the East, however, the Roman state was still seen as very much alive. The trade and infrastructure that Rome was known for still in place, a state that would be recognizable to the likes of Julius Caesar, Octavian, or Pompey Magnus. Now, I don't think we can really understand the reign of Justinian without first getting a sense of the world into which he came to power. So let's set the scene. If you want, if you want a, a pretty decent primer on like watching the fall of the, of the Roman Empire, uh, just go to your window, uh, open it, and stand there for about 10 minutes. Because there's an awful lot of parallels. Mm -hmm. We're getting to watch it in real time. Oh, yeah. Including the plague. (laughs) Now, in the late 3rd century, the Roman Empire was having itself a lot of problems, and most of these problems were related to the empire being so damn big. Barbarian incursions, civil wars, peasant rebellions, economic crises, and usurpations of the throne had all left their mark, making it abundantly clear that ruling an empire that stretched from Scotland to the Sahara and from Iraq to Spain was getting a little tough. In 284, the Emperor Diocletian made the decision to split the empire into two administrative halves by basically drawing a big line down through the Balkans and North Africa and creating an east-west division. Who would have thought that drawing a line in the Balkans would cause so many problems? I'm sorry, which century are we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) It worked out for half of them. A thousand years. Now, this split, however, created about as many problems as it solved, and over the course of the next century, different imperial administrations would go back and forth on the whole two halves thing, some going along with it, and some thinking the whole thing was stupid and they could handle ruling the whole shebang solo. One ruler of this second variety was Constantine, a name that will probably sound pretty familiar. 
In addition to being the emperor who backed the new and evolving faith of Christianity with the power of the Roman state, and in my opinion, a highly underrated Keanu Reeves vehicle. Oh, that was, I was terrible. Gonna make that. that movie's terrible. Stop it. It's a good Keanu Reeves movie, but that's not John Constantine. Consta- he wasn't even Irish. <laughs> and you know how I feel about that. But it did introduce us all to Tilda Swinton. It did. Yeah. Good call. Good call. I, sh- I should have seen this diversion coming. I'm sorry. Now, well, Con- you know you know how we feel about Keanu Reeves. That's true. Constant- and Tilda Swinton. And Tilda Swinton. <laughs> now, Constantine, the 4th century Constantine, is also known for having a little realization about the center of Roman administration. He's aware of three things. One, most of the barbarian threats to the empire were coming out of the Eastern Europe and the Eurasian steppes. Two, the primary competing power to the Rome was the Sassanid Persian kingdom in what's now Iran and its immediate surroundings. And three, if his reign was to be a period of expansion for the empire, as he'd hoped, that expansion was going to happen eastwards, since in every other direction there was either ocean, the Sahara, or endless forest filled with pissed-off Germans. Therefore, it was time for a new capital, further to the east. The site that was chosen was a small trading port on the intersection of the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, on the Bosporus, a former Greek colony called Byzantium. Now, being a humble guy, Constantine, of course, renamed Rome's new capital after himself and spent the later years of his reign making Constantinople the new hub of the empire. In only two decades, the city grew in population from about 20,000 to more than a third of a million people. Even after Constantine died in 337, the city's status remained, excuse me, and it would continue to grow. In 395, the empire finally officially split for good and not a moment too soon for the east. Now, the west was in a hell of a lot of trouble. In 410, Rome's walls were breached by invaders for the first time in eight centuries. And the fifth century was an endless series of chunks of the western empire being bitten off and taken over by Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Lombards, Vandals, Gepids, Alemanni, Teutons, Franks, Berbers, Swaby, Saxons, Angles, Jutes, Burgundy, Alans, and, of course, the heavy metal version of that girl from high school who loved horses too much, the Huns. Now, these incursions don't necessarily mean that Western Rome was a smoking wasteland. If you had gone to southern Gaul in, say, 400, uh, 400 AD, between 400 AD and 500 AD, when ownership had changed hands from the Romans to the Ostrogoths, you probably wouldn't have noticed that much of a difference. Many of these barbarian tribes, and I say barbarian in big fat quotes, after moving into Roman lands, integrated with the local population. Most of them were already heavily Christianized by the time they moved in. They adopted, Half of them were fucking Romans. Yeah. <laughs> they adopted Roman dress styles. They became more literate. They built and maintained churches, bathhouses, and aqueducts. With the exception of names, some language, and the fact that trade would have become somewhat more localized, life didn't really change all that much. The Huns, of course, are a notable exception to this. And we have to do a series on the Huns someday because their story's insane. Now, the Eastern Empire had its own issues with these tribes and their incursions, but they managed through payoffs and military force to withstand them pretty well. Constantinople thrived. It was heavily fortified in the early 5th century with a massive double masonry wall, up to 45 feet high and 20 feet thick, interspersed with hundreds of strong towers and reinforced with ditches, moats, and palisades, a defensive system that wouldn't be breached by force for over a thousand years. The city had also become the biggest trade hub in the classical world, ensconced quite happily at the intersection of Asia and Europe. For the Western Empire, however, their troubles signaled a death by a thousand cuts. And in 476, the last Western Emperor was deposed by an Ostrogoth king, and the Western half of the Empire was officially gone. The only real artifact of the Empire still functioning was the Church, which still existed with Rome as both its spiritual and temporal center, mostly through the good graces of the Ostrogoths that now ruled Italy. 
The old capital at Rome was no longer the massive metropolis that it had been at its height. By the time of our story, it was mostly a dilapidated ruin, sparsely populated by people who still dressed and spoke in the old way, but had no memory of the grandeur of the good old days. I but, read that it went from nearly a million people to 20,000 yep. in this time period. Yeah, by the 530s, down to 20,000 people. 2%. It's like in the 70s, man. 2% of the population had sight. So there were a bunch of, like, Roman football fans spread out throughout Europe. That's exactly that. what they yeah. did. They, wherever they went, they sprinkled seeds that grew like every really empire bars. It's like every yeah. empire had a Roman bar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, with the fall of the Western Empire, I think it's also worth taking a moment here to clear up a point of nomenclature. Man, there's a Steeler bar in Rome. Yeah. Shit. It's like it's, it's on the plaza. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's right there. <laughs> so from this, it's, it's a I, fucking eyesore, too. I have the shirt. Now, from this <laughs> point... Oh, you're not kidding. No. No. No, I, I, I mean, I'll go get the shirt. Yeah. So from yeah. this point forward, when we say Rome or the Roman Empire, we're talking specifically about the Eastern Empire. If the Western Empire comes up again, I'll refer to the West specifically. Uh, another point worth noting is that if we say Roman Empire, Byzantine Empire, the Byzantines, Rome, we're all talking about the same thing. So with the Western Empire gone and fragmented and the East beset by barbarians and Persians on its own borders, there was a new age of uncertainty abounding. And into this new age stepped the subject of our story, Justinian. He was born Flavius Petrus Sabatius sometime in the year 482 in the town of Teresium in what's now the northern part of the country of Macedonia. A lot of accounts of Justinian state that he was born and raised a peasant, which, while he may have been raised quite poor in relation to the backgrounds of other emperors, he wasn't exactly part of the unwashed masses. This idea of him being a country peasant may come from him being one of the last emperors to be raised outside of a distinctly urban environment, but while Teresium was seen as a backwater in the middle of farm and sheep country, it was still a city of 20,000 people, a population not reached by London until the 12th century. The best way to describe our subject's upbringing would be describe him as country gentry. This is likely the case as little Flavius' uncle was a man named Justin, who was the commander of a unit known as the Excubators. It's like whenever we found that, whose wife was named Nancy? Uh, De Ponte. Yeah, yeah Lorenzo De Ponte. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, the excubators were the main unit of imperial guards who prevented, who pre uh, protected the life of the emperor. They're not the next step of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe? I'm going to slap you. It's phase three. Yeah. It's phase three. Get together, bro. Now, this was a position of power and influence, and with the wealth that came with it, it meant that Vigilantia, Justin's sister and Flavius's mother, would not have been married off to just some country bumpkin. Vigilantia is a Marvel yeah. it's character. It's, it's girl Batman. Yeah. Okay. Now, now, thus, she was married to Sabatius, who was described in Procopius's secret history as a herder, but was probably instead a landowner who'd made his wealth from the herding of sheep, goats, or pigs. Admittedly, Justin was probably raised as a peasant and ended up fleeing to Constantinople as a teenager to avoid a barbarian incursion. Joining didn't, didn't Procopius have beef, though? Oh, we, okay. Yeah. So we will get to Procopius's beef. I'm, I'm, I think we should focus on that in the second half of the series. Okay. Because... The writing of the secret history ties into his beef so much, and that doesn't come along until the later part. I think we'll, we'll bookmark that to, when I come back to you it. You have to take what he says with a grain of salt, because this dude does have an axe to grind. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And But some of the direct quotes are absolutely marvelous out of the secret history. But some of these direct quotes that we'll talk about, they're just a little too Hollywood, mm -hmm. and there's no way that these quotes are real. Mm. There's no way. No, absolutely not. Now, uh, Justin... Joining the military proved himself a skilled soldier and administrator. 
teaching himself to read and write. And by the time of our story, Justin had risen through the ranks and was able to bring his little nephew Flavius to the capital sometime around the age of seven or eight to treat him to a high-class education. Now, normally this wouldn't be possible under the standard rules of the time, thus being able, being available only to the sons of high-level officials. But since Justin and his wife Lupacina had the misfortune of only miscarriages and deaths in infancy for any of their kids, Justin adopted little Flavius, and the boy took on the superlative of Eustinianus, meaning of Justin, or son of Justin, which gives him the name we know him by today. Now, his education at Constantinople's premier imperial academies was second to none, preparing him for a life of state service by teaching him Greek, uh, which given the time and the place of his birth, he was actually probably the last Roman emperor to be a native Latin speaker, uh, also teaching grammar, rhetoric, theology, Roman and Greek history, and jurisprudence, as well as imperial doctrine, military tactics, and court manners. Now, this education would have lasted about a decade, as was standard, and while we know as about as much of what Justinian got up to in these years as we do about his early childhood, that is to say almost nothing, uh, we do know that by the time he entered adulthood, Justinian had a reputation as a bright and avid student. As far as his appearance, Justinian is described by contemporary chronicler John Malalas as short of stature and fairly stocky, fair-skinned, with curly hair and a handsome round face. Procopius's secret history, however, which we'll talk about more, both the man and the work later, describes Justinian as fundamentally plug-ugly, with a squashed nose, boils and warts, unkempt hair, and bugged-out eyes. Although, given the invective tone, it's probably just slander. Yeah, I feel like somebody else would have made note of the boils and warts and buggy eyes. You would think. There's an awful lot of statues of them. Mm -hmm. They all kind of look the same. Yeah. They don't look like the weasel from Suicide Squad. <laughs> <laughs> now, just anybody's keeping Dragon Home. That is our third uh, comic book reference. Oh god. Two for DC, one for Marvel. I I, I long for Catherine oh. the Great. I really do. Are, are are we are we trying to get a sponsorship with Kevin Smith and GSQ? They've got a shitload of money, man. Yeah, they do. Kevin, if you're listening, love Ben Affleck and Phantoms. <laughs> Pittsburgh could Pittsburgh could use a movies. So Justinian was recruited into the Candidatii, which was a group of 40 of the emperor's personal bodyguards and considered an elite group even within the excubators. A position within the Candidatii was considered a fast track to success and position within the empire. And while Justinian was bright and ambitious, it probably didn't hurt that the one choosing the men to appoint to these positions was his uncle. Nepotism notwithstanding, though, it does seem that once Justinian was part of the Candidatii, he was actually quite good at what he did. He had a bit of a workaholic's attitude. He had a reputation for being above board in his dealings, which in the imperial court was fairly rare. And he was well-liked by those around him. Despite his youth, it seems he climbed the ladder quite quickly, and it wasn't too many years before he found himself not only as an officer within his unit, but being given other administrative and government duties as well. Through his work, he became tightly knit to a cadre of officers and high muckety-mucks with names that we'll hear again later, like uh, John of Cappadocia, John Malalas, and uh, although they were they came along later on, he would get really, really tight with a lot of military commanders. He liked surrounding himself with soldiers. He was like Frederick the Great that way. It was very Roman. Yeah. Now, one major thing that helped during the period of Justinian's rise through the ranks was the fact that from time to time, that from the time, excuse me, he became a member of the Candidatii around the year 500, there was the single uninterrupted rule of one emperor, Anastasius I. Now, Anastasius was an old man already by the time he took the throne in the early 490s, but was seen as an effective emperor, pushing back the border with the Persians and cutting down on corruption within the Roman state and stabilizing the currency in order to greatly increase the national tax income. 
allowing for an amassing of budget surplus and military power that Justinian would later capitalize on. He was, however, something of a religious reformer, and not exactly in a good way. Throughout most of his reign, Anastasius had a very moderate policy in church dealings and seemed interested in maintaining as healthy a working relationship with the church as possible. But this was an age uh, containing a swirling vortex of different ideas about the nature of what was still a fairly new and evolving faith and its role within the nation-state, as well as what to do about the primacy of a Christian state that still contained millions of people of other faiths, like Judaism, Zoroastrianism, and all stripes of pagan polytheism, as well as quite literally hundreds of differing Christian sects, and handling the fact that the center of the empire's official religion was not contained within the empire itself. At this point, there was even an official schism between the Roman Church and the Eastern Roman State, although it would be five centuries before we get to the permanent split between Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, Anastasius decided to add a big old dash of hot sauce to this already spicy stew by deciding that he believed in a different interpretation of the nature of Christ's divinity than was preeminent within the empire. And in 513, he disposed several bishops who held to the popular interpretation and replaced them with men who favored his new look on things. This set off riots throughout the empire, and a particularly devout general named Vitalian decided to raise a stink about it. So Anastasius cut off the ration shipments for Vitalian's troops, and in return, Vitalian raised an army in what's now Bulgaria, made up of some say as many as 60,000 Byzantine soldiers, allied barbarians, and just disaffected peasants. They marched on Constantinople, laying siege to the capital from its landward side, and Anastasius gathered his advisors to him, including Justinian, now in his early 30s. The emperor was happy to let the fight play out, with which he thought would be a victory for him, because, in his eyes, how could God decide otherwise, since he was definitely right about the interpretation of Christ's divinity. This this happens an awful... Like, this story plays out with very few changes in the script over and over again in the Western Roman Empire. About every five years. Yeah. And it's, it's different players, but yep. the story's the same every time. The and only reason this one stands out is because of the direct role that Justinian plays. Correct. But... Justinian, apparently, made two suggestions. One, decree a decrease in taxes for the provinces surrounding the capital in order to prevent more troops from being rallied to Vitalian's banner. And two, negotiate and make concessions so as to get the general to back his troops off from the city as the mood was already, it was already tense inside the capital and a real deal siege could lead to the popular overthrow of Anastasius's rule. So backed up by his uncle's concurrence, the young Justinian's advice was heated and it worked, at least for a while. Vitalian uh, accepted a settlement of cash, plus measures to address his soldiers' grievances, and a mediation of their religious dispute by a third party, that being the Pope. And he backed his troops off into Thrace. Now, Anastasius immediately reneged on the deal and sent an army into Thrace after the rebels, but they were ambushed and nearly wiped out. So, Anastasius sent another army, some say with 80,000 men, and this one was also crushed. Now, a truce was signed, and an uneasy state of Cold War existed between the Emperor and the breakaway faction for almost two years, until Vitalian marched again on Constantinople in 515. The now 34-year-old Justinian was officially named to his first major military command as deputy to the Byzantine High Admiral, the appropriately named Marinus. Now, they led a large naval force into battle against the rebels and pushed their way through the Golden Horn, landing thousands of troops in Vitalian's rear and defeating his force in detail. The rebel commander fled into hiding, returning, and returning to the capital in triumph, Justinian and Marinus were treated to a hero's welcome and given a full triumphal procession, making Justinian for the first time a household name in the heart of the empire. In his next several years, 
<clears throat> excuse me, would be spent undertaking missions at the behest of the now octogenarian emperor to find and eliminate associates of Vitalian, which Justinian did with gusto, showing an emerging ruthless side that will come into play later. Things, however, changed dramatically on the 9th of July, 518. Anastasius, who was already ancient by early Middle Ages standards, died of a stroke at the age of 87. Right before its death, it said, sensing that the end was near, the childless old emperor was struggling to determine which of his three nephews should succeed him, so we decided that he would have all three over for a meal and set up three couches for them to sit on, placing a piece of parchment with a proclamation of succession under one of the couches. The nephew that sat on the proclamation couch would be his successor. Sort of a, um, you know, real random choice, real roll of the dice. Lord of straw. Yeah. <laughs> you know what, man? Like, yeah. I don't hate this plan. Yep. Yeah. Could, could be worse. Something to be something to be said for the something to be said for the Byzantine take on the old eeny meeny miny mo method. It was the only thing that the Byzantines ever did that was like quick. Yeah. Here's the problem though. Here's the it problem. Was the, the only the only streamlined yeah. thing that anybody in Byzantium had ever done. Well, here's the problem though. You had three couches. Two of the nephews sat on the same couch and the one with the concealed proclamation under it remained empty throughout the meal. Now, seeing this as a sign from God and putting the matter to prayer, the old emperor then determined that the first person to enter his bedchamber the next morning, aside from his servants, presumably, uh, would be his successor. And the first entrant was none other than old Uncle Justin, whom Anastasius had never considered before, but since he believed it to be a sign from God. And upon his death, the succession had already been sealed. And that proclamation, combined with the greasing of a lot of palms by the canny Justin in order to secure votes in the election of the new emperor, help secure the result. Thank God it wasn't Marjorie Taylor Greene that sat on that couch. Oh, jeez. It's not that different than how she got the job as it is. It really is. She did run on a post. (laughs) Now, Justin was the emperor of the Romans, and it didn't take long for his nephew Justinian to be seen as the heir apparent. As so happened upon the extension of a new Roman emperor throughout the history of both sides of the empire, there were some pretty major shakeups. While he had the good sense to shut up and keep his head down before he became emperor, Justin didn't subscribe to his predecessor's views on Christianity and immediately set about removing from their positions all of those officials that Anastasius had put in place in order to cement his religious vision. Those who didn't voluntarily leave, or those who were seen as a direct threat to Justin's power, were very quickly murdered, and Justinian was part and parcel of these parts to help secure his uncle's power base. Now, Justin was a soldier and a rougher sort, and so didn't exactly grasp all the subtleties of statecraft, but he did have around him a series of intelligent and canny advisors, Justinian foremost among them. The emperor's nephew was promoted to Comes Domesticus, head of the imperial guard, but set about making his presence felt far beyond the military sphere. It was on Justinian's advice that a papal delegation from Rome was invited to Constantinople with the purpose of closing the ongoing religious schism, and this was successfully achieved by March of the next year. Now, Justinian also suggested other ways of securing his uncle's power base, including issuing pardons to some of Anastasius' old enemies, including none other than Vitalian, whom Justinian had defeated on the battlefield several years before, and bringing him into Justin's inner circle. Now, this helped to ensure popular support for the new emperor in lands that had rebelled in the previous years, and Justinian also pushed a moderated foreign policy, focused on building rapport with some of the barbarian kings reigning in former parts of the Western Empire and conducting negotiations towards peace agreements that would neutralize potential military threats to the Byzantines. And in return, help those local kings in reconciling the local populations to their rule with the support of Constantinople. 
Justinian also pushed his uncle away from direct military conflict with the Sassanid Persians, and instead focused on using Byzantine power to back breakaway states on the Persians' borders and offering indirect assistance rather than spending large amounts of blood and treasure on foreign wars, taking more of a Cold War model. This allowed for a focus on protection of Byzantine territory, and during Justin's reign, despite ongoing border skirmishes with the Persians, no significant piece of Byzantine territory was lost. This military draw drawdown also allowed for a growing budget surplus, and by the end of Justin's reign, the Byzantines were sitting on over 400,000 pounds of excess gold in the imperial treasury, equal in modern, modern purchasing power to over $3 trillion dollars. There were, however, a few problems. Some of the former enemies brought no back... Money. Yeah. No problems. Yeah. Or you could just, like, go to space. And have, like, two trillion left yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. Just, just go to space, because apparently that's a rich people. Come back. Put At a least big, the weird rich people. Put a big old douchebag cowboy hat on when you return. That was yeah. so weird, man. Ha <laughs> My big penis rocket is three times the size of your big penis rocket. Like, what if Lex Luthor showed up to fight <clears throat> Superman with a cowboy hat on? Like, if you're going to be an actual, like, cartoony supervillain... Don't wear the cowboy hat. Like, what the, what the fuck is that? Speaking, speaking of supervillains, <laughs> well, this is where Vitalian reenters the story. Uh, right. Well, and I mean, did you, see when the, when, did you see when the rocket booster left? I mean, maybe Bezos didn't make that, whatever that stratospheric line is. Do, do you mean when the big metal penis fucked the sky? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah well, maybe he didn't make it, but I do got to give him credit for breaking the sound barrier in a yurt. That's true. <laughs> That, that, you imagine because there was some poor bastard that busted like Mongols ass. for centuries have always dreamed of <laughs> this cat his whole life he woke up early he went to the library all the time he studied hard he was an actual rocket scientist and on the day that his baby was finally going to to blast off into the heavens Twitter just called it a dick rocket we're still doing it. It was a month yeah. ago. Yeah. I mean, it's a dick rocket. It's it has balls. It, 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 I mean, it, it has balls, Mike. Can, can we be honest? Austin Powers predicted it. Yeah. I, totally predicted it. You couldn't have scripted it like that. I mean, they were even bald. Do you think he... <laughs> they, they were even... And I know this is a bit it. of an aside. You think he did it on purpose? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you... You don't not see it. You, you, I'm sorry. Throughout that whole process, you don't have at least one brave underling who walks up and goes, uh, Mr. Bezos, are you aware that the rocket looks like a 300-foot penis? Like, exactly like a penis? Somebody did. Yes. So, like they, they may not have a job afterwards, but somebody said it. They had to know. I'm sorry. Because they got fired because Bezos turns on him and goes, you fool, that's the point. Yeah, what are you doing? No, he going to the bathroom. Back to work. He, yeah. he didn't consumer. fire him. He's the he's the maintenance guy, the lowest maintenance guy at the <laughs> at, at your this local is Amazon, Amazon to warehouse. Pee is to die. <laughs> so, back to more money, more problems. Some of the former enemies brought back into the embrace of the throne were starting to look like potential threats to Justinian's growing power, and so, using members of the excubitors, Justinian set about a campaign of assassinating various former rebels. Most importantly, Vitalian himself, in July of 520, stabbed to death within the royal palace. Justinian, of course, claimed that they were plotting against his uncle, and he was just doing his sworn duty of protecting the emperor, though whispers around court men had mentioned Vitalian as being a potential rival. Hey, I was, just, I was just protecting a made man. Yeah. <laughs> he fell. 
<laughs> they had him get the good suit on. Yeah. <laughs> so also, Justin by this point was pretty fucking old by late antiquity standards in his late 60s and by all accounts was starting to lose his mental faculties. Now, Procopius states that, quote, the emperor, as an idiot and advanced in age, caused the laugh of the environment and was also accused of delays in decisions and inability for his duties. And this was from the stuff he wrote that Justinian knew about. So in 521, Justinian pressured his uncle into declaring him as Consularis in Perpetui, officially enshrining his nephew as his number two, a sort of vice-emperor. Now this all but ensured that Justinian would take the throne on Justin's passing, and gave him unparalleled power and influence at court, allowing him to function as a virtual regent. This is just what the CIA did in any place where somebody spoke Spanish. Yeah. It's just, it's the same damn thing. Pretty much. President for life. <laughs> so Justinian was now getting into his 40s, and if he was going to be made emperor, and soon, he had one hurdle left to leap. He had to find himself a wife. Now, like most holders of high office in this age, he would have been expected to find an eligible young lady of the perfect marrying age for a Byzantine nobleman in his 40s. Some girl who was around 14 or 15. Yeah, it sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little older than I anticipated. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, you want to get him right in that old Matt Gates gap. <laughs> His wife would bring con uh, connections to other powerful families and factions within Constantinople, helping solidify both his wealth and his claims to authority. She'd bring with her a handsome dowry, of course, paid by a father who was overjoyed to have this burdensome female child taken off his hands. This was all standard practice. Justinian took... A different option. See, he had a habit of going to the burlesque. And at his favorite burlesque was an actress named Theodora. She'd been born sometime around 500 in either Cyprus or Syria, but her family came to Constantinople in her early childhood, where her father found work as a bear trainer, and her mother worked as an actress, which was not the most honored of professions. In fact, it was seen as the very, very lowest of chosen professions. Now, her father died when she was four, and her mother, financially desperate, sold all four of her young daughters to one of the city's groups of chariot racing supporters, the Greens. More about the chariot teams later. This situation was exactly what you think it is, so I'll spare you all the gritty details. All we need to know is that by her late teens, Theodora was working in a brothel as both a standard-issue prostitute but also finding a place as a performer on the stage, singing body songs, dancing sexually while swearing very little, and acting out filthy stories using garish props made usually made to depict comically large sex organs. Basically how this podcast got started. Yeah, more yeah. or less. Yeah. It, it was my initial plan for our OnlyFans, but now it has to be wholesome. Yeah. Now, in his famous account of Theodora, itself based on the secret history, English historian Edward Gibbon wrote, quote, her venal charms were abandoned to a promiscuous crowd of citizens and strangers of every rank and of every position. The fortunate lover who had been promised a night of enjoyment was often driven from her bed by a stronger or more wealthy favorite. And when she passed through the streets, her presence was avoided by all who wished to escape either the scandal or the temptation. So, little bit of a sex-negative view there. Problem is, is that Byzantine society also tended to take this view. Now, regardless, she was talented and beautiful and surprisingly pious, and several historians have posited that Justinian's own moral code wouldn't allow him to pay for sex. But she wasn't going to fuck him for free, so 
he decided that the big move was to marry her. So Justinian was in love, but there were two problems. Under the current Byzantine canon law, any woman who was ever an actress at any point in her life was not allowed to get married in a church ceremony, which was a must-do for the heir apparent to the throne, and anyone of senatorial rank or above was prohibited from marrying below a certain social rank, of which actresses and sex workers were definitely the lowest of the low. So Justinian pressured his easily manipulated senile uncle into passing an edict, which declared that reformed actresses, whatever reformed means, <laughs> could indeed marry outside their station. I, I do think the one thing that we, and I don't know why it is the case with actresses, but one thing we definitely need to visit here is uh, sex workers and, and actors were two very different things. Yeah. <laughs> but for whatever reason, they hated actors so much more. However, it was... This is back whenever satire mm. was very big, so I think that's yeah. why, especially people in positions of power... Did not like... The, yeah. It's the same reason why if you ever see a statue, uh, like these, these giant marble statues of all of these old Romans and Greeks, uh, they all have tiny little dicks. Yep. Because the people that, that, had the, that commissioned these statues for however much money would be like, oh yeah, if you have a big dick, you're just a big stupid idiot. You're just a big, dumb loser. Everybody knows that if you have a tiny little wiener, you're, like, super cool and smart. Man, how things have changed. And they're yeah. like, yeah, you know what? I have a little wiener, too. That's awesome, brother. They're, like, <laughs> high five each other. Well, so here's, I think it's the same thing. Well, I think he, uh, so they, here's what I think. I do think that actress was probably a euphemistic term as well. So we're I, in, in, I mean, so in, in this time period, in this location, we're, were women allowed to act in... Yes. It shows up. So okay. So it wasn't yeah. Shakespeare the, time the, equivalent. Yeah, that had definitely changed. And this is also in, in in as pious a city as it was, there was an awful lot of sexuality. Like, so fairly open. Like well, brothels were a thing. They 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 didn't have to operate in secret. So what I think open. is I think is in the next episode as we get into what's going to be a really big event for for uh, Constantinople, we're going to get into just what a filth pile the city actually was. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 when, it, when it comes to acting, And I mean that in every respect too, of the word. Uh, Theodora was particularly known for her, perform her rather scandalous performance of Lita in the Swan. Yep. And if, um, if any of our people, uh, people that listen to us aren't familiar with mythology, Lita in the Swan is actually the precursor to the more well-known reboot of the Russian film Catherine and the Horse. <laughs> There it is. What a well-composed Catherine the Great joke. That's the best one. Well, oh, I mean, well, and, well, there, well, Mike. well, we usually well, go hey. for the low-hanging fruit here. Well, well, hey, you know, and by the way, Kevin Smith, <laughs> if you're listening, that's interspecies erotica, fucko. So, um, <laughs> by the way, I just want to point out while you were saying that, Kyle's sitting there behind his mic, flipping through the copy he has of A History of the Church in the Middle Ages. Desperately trying to figure out where he missed that part of the equation. <laughs> but no, it, it, reason well, it just keeps in, going to Ken Russell's Salome. Oh, yeah. But one, one of the things. This whole thing is incredibly Ken Russell, isn't it? <laughs> but my point with the Lita and Swan thing was actually that one of the things that was well known about actresses, and where you mentioned that it's a euphemism, is that they were expected before, during intermission, and after the show to. Manually service, yeah. People that were basically to, like to, in the to, front row to engage in business, right? Yeah, the old, uh, you know, little bit of uh, Byzantine networking, right? And I, 
I don't know exactly what it was. I don't know if it was the bodiness or whatever, but like actors, actor and actress, particularly actress, because you know uh, it's kind of how society's operated for millennia. Um, what do you mean it, operated past tense? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, don't worry. We have the WNBA, right? Isn't that good enough? Yeah. You know, um, we're, we're we're past the point societally of of of, of, yeah, of slut shaming any we're, famous woman. We're talking woman. about we're talking about equality. So naturally, yeah. we're just going to lead into the crucible of sport. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, it, it, so yeah. So this edict is passed that uh, reformed actresses could indeed marry outside their station in a church, so long as they were indeed reformed. No idea what reform means. I've never seen it defined in the in, in, in the context of this law. But with this new law in place, in early 525, Justinian and Theodora were married in a lavish ceremony in front of a large and assumedly confused and scandalized crowd of Byzantine high society. For him, it makes sense, though. I mean, the people around him never let him forget that he was not born into the yeah. aristocracy. Yeah, So that's for true. him, like, he already had this chip on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. She's in ownership of her body and sounds like an absolute delight on an intellectual level. And 20 years younger. Yeah. Fuck it. I mean, it's great. I, literally. I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why they got married. <laughs> well, I, think, well, <laughs> I, I, well, I think you make a very good point. I think there is an element of Justinian saying, okay, you think I'm scum? Well, here we go. I'm going to be emperor anyway, so <laughs> I win. So the last couple years of Justin's rule were colored by an increase in tensions with the empire's neighbors. And new rulers took the throne in the Persian Empire and Ostrogoth, Italy, who rejected the settlements they had with the Byzantines, upping the threat level posed on the empire's borders. This was there. While nothing was really done about it at the time, Justinian made note of these new threats and knew that in time he would have to act. Now, in addition, in 526, Antioch, the empire's third largest city in what's now Syria, was flattened by a massive earthquake that is said to have killed over 50,000 people. Was it an earthquake, or was it the Holy Hand Grenade? Oh, it was, it was, it was definitely an the earthquake. The Holy Hand Grenade was recovered eventually. Yes. In time. Yes. And there was much rejoicing. Yay! Yay. I heard it was a magnitude one, two, five... Three. 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 Ah, three. Four. Right <laughs> now. Now, the, the heading of the relief and rebuilding effort was placed personally by the emperor into Justinian's hands, and this earned him a lot of popular support in the eastern part of the empire. And Justinian's final step in securing his place in the succession was granted on the 1st of April, 527, when he was declared by a barely functional Justin to now be his co-emperor, which we all know Justinian had nothing to do with setting in motion. There were now two emperors. He just weekended Bernie's his ass up. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. I think Justinian should do it. Yeah. Good call, Uncle Jay. <laughs> it's, I mean, you're not You wrong. had that, didn't you? You had it. <laughs> By the way, is anyone else that you want to hear Uncle Justin just picturing a dude walking in, sipping a bang energy drink, wearing a pink tank top that says sun's out, gun's out? I want to take a quick aside. Now. If you guys have not seen the CEO of Bang Energy Drink, and this includes my listeners uh, at home, Stop what you're doing and Google this dude. <laughs> Kyle, you haven't. You have he homework. He looks like Bang Energy Drink as a person. He has a giant jewel-encrusted gold Bang Energy charm. It has to be 20 grand. He, Frosted tips. Hold on. He mile fl- high. He, he flavor flaved it. Oh, it's, I mean, it's impressive. But so, this guy is the best, and I love him. Kyle, you're going to look it up. We're going to continue with the story. So, Oh, my God. <laughs> 
None of these things was a lie. <laughs> oh, you are not wrong. Oh, so he bad. is. Can we get a name? He, can we get a, can we get a he's name? also okay. clearly like 65. Oh, oh uh, yeah, no yeah. Idea. He's not a young man. Uh, Jack O'Walk. Yeah, uh, please, dear listener. Yeah. Just, just in the hit, first, hit Adventure pause. of the Sea Dude. <laughs> 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 just, just hit pause, Google it, have yourself a laugh. Good Lord. Go Jack O'Walk. So, there were yeah. now two emperors. looks like yeah. every person in Florida <laughs> together. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if they were... Marketing themselves as motivational speakers. He looks like every du- he looks like every dude I ever threw out of a nightclub in the strip district whose response was, "Don't you know who I am?" Oh man, this guy's the best. Yeah. So I'm gonna do a Jack O'Walk uh, one-off episode. <laughs> it's just gonna be talking about how cool I think this guy is. <laughs> so there you know, this Lambo is just like wrapped in bang ads. All right, I'm gonna bring this back on track if it fucking kills me. There were now two emperors on the Byzantine throne. <laughs> Reflective of times of Rome past, but rather than a pair of rivaled equals, one was shrewd and fully helming the ship of state, while the other was presumably sitting, making a mess in his royal purple imperial robes. Now, Justinian's long-realized dream finally occurred only a few months later, on the 1st of August, 527, when his beloved uncle, Justin I, he of the bang energy drink and the pink tank top, emperor of the Romans, died at the age of 77. Now, Justinian's voting in as the new emperor was almost unanimous, which is unsurprising given that he'd spent the last nine years curating a devoted group of followers and advisors. And killing those that weren't. Mm -hmm. And greasing the right palms. As was the style at the time. Mm -hmm. As was his want. Now, given the familial link and Justinian's role as an effective regent, there was quite a bit of continuity within the government, again, which was rare, and many of the same figures remained in place. But Justinian made a point to draw to him a new young group of rising stars, Men like the talented cavalry officer Belisarius, who was only 19 when he became a commander within the household guards. A guy named Narses, an Armenian eunuch who was Justinian's steward. We have John the Cappadocian, the talented finance minister, and Trebonian, whose legal knowledge was said to have surpassed all others within the empire. And we did mention before Procopius of Caesarea, another wunderkind of the imperial court whose incredible talent for processing and recording information sealed his place as Justinian's court chronicler, and historian, although that would end up going a little bit wrong. I'm not sure yeah, I know how to write a check at 19. Yeah. Now, sitting on a significant talent pool and a massive amount of state funds, it was time to get busy with Justinian's own promised Renovatio Imperii, the resurgence of the empire. Now, one of Justinian's first acts as emperor was to launch a war with the Persians to try and secure a bunch of disputed territory up near the Caucasus Mountains by the Black Sea. The Persians launched a series of, had launched a series of raids and were trying to exact tribute from the Byzantines, but Justinian put together an army of 30,000 men and put the young Belisarius in charge. Can you imagine being 19 and being put in charge of an army of 30,000 people? No, I was completely worthless at 19. Yeah. I would love it. I would have had a go. I, I would have had I, a go. It would have been great. I can say I would have <laughs> given it my best shot. Now, oh, how it would have worked out. I mean, I had played a lot of Battlefield It would have been great for PC. me. Butler yeah. would no longer exist. <laughs> it, would not, it would not have been great for the other 30,000 people I've been charged of, but I would have had Don't a get me fucking wrong. Blast. Don't get me wrong. At 19, I was really good at Rome Total War. But... <laughs> <laughs> in real life, you I were don't, just always I don't think nerd, so. Weren't you? Yeah, always. This is news? No. Buddy, I'm the head researcher on a history no. podcast. Come on. So. I was playing Halo like a fucking adult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like a grown up. 
I was just getting called a bunch of racial slurs by children on my Xbox. That's true. <laughs> so in a campaign lasting some four years, things initially didn't go that well for the Byzantines, but Belisarius eventually managed to lead an army that was on the back foot to a series of victories against the Persians that ended in them surrendering the territory in return for a cash payout. The real Sidney Crosby energy yeah. right there. <laughs> so the re-expanding of the Roman Empire had begun. On the home front, Justinian immediately set about instituting new tax codes and stricter punishments for debtors and those caught in corrupt financial practices, further increasing the empire's already healthy cash flow. Seeing, though, that this through this process, though, that Byzantine law, both canon and temporal, was quite scattershot and hard to discern, Justinian decided to use the legal nows of his advisor, Trebonian, to put together his first great work, an organized and reformed laying out of imperial laws known as the Corpus Juris Civilis, also known as the body of civil law. Now, Mike, I know you are a, you have been raving about this, so I know that. Uh, so I want to hand it over to you for a few minutes. Well, I, of, and I, and, yeah. and I've been raving about it because I, I think it's there's so many things that are so important about Justinian, and this tops the list for me first off this this has to be number one right yeah you would think but you would be wrong (laughs) i mean as we'll find out later particularly in the second episode so although if you want to talk legacy this might be yeah this yeah probably legacy wise this is probably his greatest work Mm -hmm. he's he's in the senate chamber of the united states of america yeah like yeah, it's yeah. definitely. I mean, to be fair, so is that asshole who grabbed the podium. So, <laughs> so is that moose hat guy or buffalo hat. Yeah, sorry, so, I fucked up. But yeah, okay. I mean, like, yeah. when you talk about legacy, like the he's the reason why the United States is a thing. Right. At the first Continental Congress, they invoked this. Yeah, like, right. They name. they specifically asked for this. Right by name, they voted on it using that system. Right, exactly. Right. We'll get to it. Don't blow so, the lead. Right. So after Justinian took control of the empire in 527, he thought, if I were emperor, hey, I'd... Hey, I am the emperor. So I guess... (laughs) Oh, shit! (laughs) So I... I, 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 Oh, yeah, poor Uncle Justin. No, I heard Justin, and I just thought it was the other guy. So I guess growing (laughs) weary... Sorry, old habits. Growing weary of seeing Chaphonus, Luhanus, and Cordelio and Cordelio ads every time he left the the palace, he probably... he thought to himself, maybe... <laughs> Sideboard, do you see those two little slap nuts have beards now? <laughs> no. Uh, it's been... They got to no, change no, the Shenderovich, Shenderovich, no. and Fishmobile that's wrapped and drives <laughs> around my, my neighborhood all the time. Mike, well, I hey, want to say... Is... Mike, I'm going to say, that was a very well-crafted joke, but people are only going to get that if they are from Pittsburgh and no, massive actually, nerds. I, actually, I specifically went to national law firms. Uh-huh. Cordell and Cordell and Chafe and Lohana are yeah. both. Oh, national. you're right about that. Yeah. Those so guys anyway, they came from the same test tube. Anyway, <laughs> it looks like those two got stuck to the side, and the big one was just done. Like they're like the stars of the next season of American Horror Story. Oh yeah, it's it's unsettling. So we'll there, link to that in the show notes. There, there's there's essentially they'd probably get sued, but essentially they're dealing with Byzantine ambulance chasers all over the place. Enter. The Corpus Juris Cavellus. On February of 528, uh, uh, Justinian, and by the way, uh, I apologize ahead of time. I'm going to butcher a whole lot of names here in the next couple of minutes. It's fine, man. They're dead. Anyway, he assembled 
10 legal experts, and 39 scribes to collect, compile, and reassess the existing laws within the empire. Over the course of 400 years, Roman law had been diluted into a system of misinterpretations and hanging, uh, haggling over legal applications, so much so that many areas of the protectorate had basically devolved into laws based on, or legal proceedings based on nothing more than customs and mores. Um, so it's like the U.S. tax code now. It's a, it's a jumbled mess. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and I'll give you the numbers in a second, think more than National Registry, which has seven, mm. 77,000 oh, yeah. pages, yeah, which is two full, talent, two full pallets of paper. So these were accepted standards at the time, and many of the courts relied on them anyway, but there would be no way for Justinian to expand the empire without codifying this law in such a way that upon taking land, they could assert the, lo- the legal system into the new lands properly. Um, Trebonian became the uh, Quisitor Sacre Palati, or the Quisitor of the Sacred Palace, and he was placed in charge of this commission. He was the St. Thomas More of his day, or um, better described, I think he was like our, uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with better robes. So, <laughs> I mean... He was the man. You mean, you mean Judge Judy? Yeah, Judge Judy. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I, I, there was zero, zero way. Hey, that, that's, well, that's still one step. That's still one step up from Gary Busey, pet judge. So, um. <laughs> that's not, what fucking Gilbert? I am the monarch of the court. <laughs> anyway. Together, and here's the here's the sheer numbers. This was what got me. Mm. Together, the commission reviewed and pared down over two thousand books, which included over three million individual lines of text. This is and this is when books were rare. Exactly, because they were all handwritten. The printing press was still what five hundred years out. A thousand. Many of these laws were either repetitive or contradictory, and they dated back to one seventeen with the Emperor Hadrian. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, they were able to uh, find continuity because there were previous codexes, uh, one being uh, Gregorianus, Hermogenianus, and Theodosianus. I am sorry to all of my um, Latin, Roman, and <laughs> Greek so friends. It's okay, buddy. You, you uh, joined the Catholic Church after Vatican II, Electric exactly. Boogaloo. You're good. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, these, uh, these books allowed all the edicts to be coded by year and mm-hmm. by emperor in a chronological flow. The result of that was the first, the first leg, the first piece of the corpus. It was issued in April of 589. And 520, yeah, five, yeah. yeah, 529. Fast typer. <laughs> no, actually, fast, tri- fast speaker. The Codex Justinianus contained 12 books and 4,562 imperial edicts dating all the way back to Hadrian. Uh, preserved in Latin, they achieved their most important mission of clarifying and streamlining the official legal system of the empire. Unfortunately, being used to the old system, it failed to gain a foothold in the day-to-day lives of the average citizen and the minor uh, magisterial courts, and many of the same problems persisted. So, I think it's worth noting, because Justinian knew that that Greek was fast becoming the language of not only the common language within the Byzantine Empire, but the language of state. Right. 
However, I think he felt he needed to have these done in Latin in order to reinforce them with a sense of history, a sense of establishment, a sense of, of this is the law of Rome, and Rome has been around since 753 B.C. Right. Well, and I would agree with that. I would also point out, because uh, three of the sections were actually written in, mm-hmm. in Latin, um, one of the other things that he did with that was the speed in which the Justinian Code was compiled. Yes. For as much information and data as these legal experts and scribes had to go through, they got um, the it, it was official. Uh, it, it was issued. You know what? What is it? February February of five twenty eight. Yeah. April of 529. Well, they were, sitting they, on, went well they were sitting on a big old surplus. Books. You right. can pay for a lot of law clerks to go to work right. with that. Well, that so, and a lot of the legal code just hmm. replicated itself or contradicted but, itself, mm-hmm. and yet it's real quick to cut shit out if it doesn't make a goddamn lick of sense. But it would have been a whole lot easier to put it out untranslated. We're just going to keep it in its original form. But I do, I do agree with you. I think there was a sense of history, yeah. a sense of we've got to keep the old stuff. I mean, hell, we still do a lot with Latin in the American yeah, yeah. still But, the, but so there were some interesting – But so it was a compiling of the law, but there were some interesting kind of new laws that Justinian worked into this, right? Yes. Well, that'll, that'll come later. Just give me a second. Um, no. No. So – and, and this, this went on over time. Uh, roughly four years later, the Digestum, a book uh, – 50 books of specific legal opinions – were added as a second part, which was the much more difficult task, Mm -hmm. was going through each legal opinion and deciding, okay, well, we're going to keep this one in the system, we're going to use the other one, or we're not going to use it. So basically, these are the laws, and then here's the book saying, these are why the laws are the laws and why the laws are right. Right. Well, in much the same way, if if, if you go to a typical law library, you're Mm -hmm. going to see, here's the Constitution. Now here's 5,000 books on... Legal opinions based on the Constitution, so yeah, that's that's what the do- yeah. And, yeah exactly. Um, finally, um, the last Latin section of it was called the Institutus. It was a guide to legal students preparing f- for apprenticeships in law. This was basically a legal textbook, or in our parlance, the film My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, they use it in law school. Yeah, right. They do. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, finally, to get to your point, the last piece was in Greek, and it was Justinian's own edicts made up the last part of the code. The code was called, or this section of the code was called the Novellae Constitutionis, and it was unique because it was written in Greek, which was the Vulgate, because nobody but scholars were using or understood Latin. I think you mentioned earlier in the episode that uh, that Justinian, Justinian himself was one of the last people, was, was one of the last groups of students that was educated in Latin. in Latin. But these were the laws they expected to affect the day-to-day of the average citizen. Exactly. So it's kind of considered unsuccessful for its time because it didn't directly strengthen or expand the size of the empire. And there weren't a whole lot of magisterial courts that were using it. Yeah. But it had elements, and this is what we were going to go over, is this had elements that would be considered quite progressive for its day. Absolutely. uh, Specifically regarding women. 
The first of which, I mean, a lot of them are fairly fairly progressive for our day, to, for right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the rights again, of, OnlyFans, you motherfuckers, pay attention. <laughs> the rights of women to divorce their husband for acts of treason and adultery were set in place, which heretofore had not been heard of. Treason. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. He's covering all your bases. Yeah, exactly. you really are. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> did he cheat on you? No, but he did break into the Capitol. Right. <laughs> hey, 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 Amber Justinian, I, I, I want to divorce my husband. Why is that? He called you a dickhead. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, yeah, you get your divorce and you come with me. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it increased powers of divorce. It, it um it well it put more importantly it put women on a much closer footing mm-hmm. than men where um, married women had actual some actual rights in court even though they couldn't testify technically they could bring cases um, no fault divorce was a new thing that they had where, where divorce by mutual consent was considered an option. Mm-hmm. It was new for most of the Western world until, like, what, 70 years ago? Not well, even. Well, yeah, I guess it's 2020. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and here's this, guy put, here's this guy putting it in 1,500 years. It also decriminalized yeah. a lot of sex work. Well, it's, and that's the, the exactly, it's Kyle. It's not it's, shocking, knowing what we know about well, his, again, his, his own personal wife. Background. Yeah. Um, this is one of... Very few times, and uh, I don't know if you and I talked about this earlier, Rob and I talked about it earlier, where Theodora had sexual agency. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, she was a prostitute, and everybody knew it, and she <laughs> talked about it at length. You know, like, she was very much in charge of these conversations. So the fact that he, I, I don't know that he had always had, it's very, very unlikely that he always had these kind of sentiments with, to whether or not women should be able to behave like this. But whenever he meets her, how much it changes his opinion. She That's was, what I was about to ask. How set, much does his relationship with Theodora affect had, the formation of the Codex? I mean, we know that she's, she's bright. We yeah. know that she's very charming. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not traditionally educated. She's an she incredibly can, capable woman. She can read and write. Yeah. And it, it was more than he could do. She could write yeah. before he could. Well, and here's what's interesting, too, about the Codex, especially the laws regarding prostitution, because not only does it prote- give prostitutes legal rights in court, it protects the very existence of prostitution as a trade. Because what you have is you're coming out of a period where both the Roman em- the old Roman Empire and, for the most part, early Christians had a pretty healthy attitude towards sex oh, and absolutely. sex work. But around this time, there really started to emerge some real sex-negative hardliners who wanted to outlaw, literally outlaw, all but procreative sex within marriage and to make prostitution not just a crime, a capital crime. Yeah, you know, like Texas. No, I think it's, no, I think it's real rich coming from a bunch of stinky virgins living in, a, in caves in the hills of Turkey. Or but Texas. it's also a time, <laughs> or you know, yeah. the American South. But these guys are also really doubling down on a lot of their religious messaging, revolving around the idea of original sin, and suggesting, and 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 I mean, it's we're we're seeing this becoming a thing again in the last couple weeks of these religious hardliners. They're just going to basically enslave women. Well, that's what these guys were trying to do. The and reign of Geraldus Falwellian. Yeah, and this. <laughs> This is why this is why we're friends. Is but 
Yeah, we're starting to. It's it's that kind of pushback too. It's looking at these hardliners that Justinian was never a fan of and going, <laughs> "You guys aren't in charge right now." And what, well, and here's what it, it's it's funny you it's funny you bring that up because it's one of the the things that I noticed about Justinian and what he allowed in. Yes, he gave sex workers not only agency but personhood, um, but he still had to draw the line in that they would not be considered legitimate regarding marriage, mm. marriage yeah. and dowries, or hierarchical lineage. Um, he had to he had to still that, allow that in there because he was walking the line of the fact that one of the unique parts was the emphasis in the Justinian Code where they threw canon law in. Mm-hmm. Well, it, but there are other— Canon law comes from this. Yes, but there are also—we'll get to the canon law in a second, but there are also other uh, protections brought about for women. There are harsher sentences for rape and sexual misconduct. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there's also the this idea that women accused of major crimes should only be guarded by women that in was, order to in order to pre- in order to prevent that. sexual abuse. We don't even get that today. No. That was I could not believe that yeah. was canonified that early. But it's also mm-hmm. uh, you have the return of dow- of dowries paid to widows. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're basically going, well no, this is their family wealth because these are paid to their husbands. Well, their husbands aren't around anymore. Up until this point, any money that was paid to the husband was returned to the wife's family, but the wife had no control over it. No, now it goes back to her. And this is particularly fun, and I didn't know about this because, I, admittedly, I have not read the Codex in its entirety because it's a thousand pages. You fucking post. Uh, oh, fuck you. I read a thousand pages of text it's, already researching this episode. Come on, man. We had like six months between episodes. It's, it's, I, oh, yeah. kiss, okay, kiss the fattest part of my ass, Miller. It's, it's, it's only... It, it, really... It's only four times bigger than the Bible. No, it's only, it, four yeah, it's times. only four times bigger than the Bible. It's also $250 on Amazon, and, and the pandemic's been weird. I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> but also, this one I didn't know about until you told me about it, that husbands couldn't agree to debts above a certain amount without their wife's consent unless their wife gave consent in front of two different officials. Exactly. I was going to bring that up. I don't even have that now. No, Not the doubling no, down. No, it's incredible. No, I mean, if you're married, you have to co-sign on loans and stuff like that. But it's also... But in, you only have to... Wait a second. You only have... You still, to this day, you only yeah. have to co-sign on loans when a, a mutual account is involved. Exactly. If I have my own bank account... But you don't have to do it twice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's remarkable. These, this, is, this is what makes this, yeah. this, this code so remarkable. And then they up and lost it. Yeah. After the reign of Justinian, it just goes away. It well, kinda... some things that we'll talk about start to affect the swing back in another cultural and moral direction. But... Well, there are also definitely some cons to the Codex. Oh, absolutely. Particularly around canon law. And, and it, it's, you know, it takes, Indulgences. The, well, it takes the dominant form of Christianity known as Chalcedonian Christianity and names that as the official form of worship within the empire, which is nothing new. We went through that with, um, with, with Constantine. But it outlaws all other forms of yeah. worship, right. which is not good. Um, it also declares that any other person who is not a declared Chalcedonian Christian is no longer a citizen of the empire. However, they're still obligated to pay taxes. In fact, they're obligated to pay extra taxes for not being Chalcedonians. And they're also knocked out of access to trade. They're knocked out of access to having certain jobs. It is kind of this state of... Of like uh, a, a low level religious apartheid, right? Yeah, 
And you are dealing with a religious melting pot, as we mentioned earlier. This is a swirling vortex of different faiths. And, and, and the other thing is, is where are you going to go? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, with, 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 where are the hinterlands yeah. to move to to avoid this? Well, this one's this one's a little bit a little bit fun because uh, the Codex also stated that um, anyone present for a pagan human sacrifice ritual could be indicted for murder. Um, although it is worth noting that none of the existing pagan religions within the empire at that time were known to have practiced human sacrifice. So that's just sort of. Uh, to me, that smacks of like a knock-on effect of um, conspiracy, yeah. of of it's sort of uh, on a different level, but in a similar vein, uh, like painting the Jews with blood libel. It's mm-hmm. it's that idea of oh, hey, hey, we know you're actually up to it. We have no proof, but we know you're getting up to it, and we're going to use that as a basis for before, persecution. But there's things yeah. that'll. But I like I I like the whole blood libel thing. That matzo was so good. <laughs> So, you can't get that yeah. taste. You can't get that taste from but pagan so, children. But so, it's this, <laughs> but so it's this groundbreaking document that then becomes a foundation for both religious and temporal law, not just not just throughout the rest of the Byzantine Empire, right. but it goes into, as we mentioned before, America, the formation of the American legal system in the 18th century, a lot of European legal systems in the seven, in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. I mean, it's endlessly quoted. A religious <laughs> doctrine. Well, our entire federal judiciary is based mm-hmm. is rather than being based on an accusatory system, <laughs> is based on an inquisitory system, yep. which comes directly from the Justinian Code. Not only that, but also the establishment of appeals courts, right. which is also contained within the code. So, by 532, many of these new laws were all now being strictly enforced, and there were grumblings in the great capital city about how this new emperor had turned out to be a real prick, and who did he think he was? And this religious stuff isn't what we were taught. And did you hear about what his wife used to get up to? He just and calls him like he sees him, and he's kind yeah. of guy I want to have a beer with. And maybe, and he's not some maybe weird old man that lives in a gold apartment. In the sky. But maybe it would be better if this guy were gone. Thanks, Justinian. Now, Justinian had some fears that he had a target on his back because, as so often happens with autocrats, with power comes paranoia. But there were some forces within Constantinople that could, said that. That, could <laughs> that could prove hazardous to Justinian's reign. And that brings us to the Hippodrome, the social heart of the capital. Now, the favorite sport of Constantinople's residents was by far chariot racing, and they had a hell of a venue for it. Now, built by Constantine during the city's transition as the new center of the Roman Empire, just for this purpose, the Hippodrome was well over a quarter mile long and 450 feet wide. Well, hell, Talladega's bigger than that. Oh, shut up. Capable of putting more than 100,000 people in the stands at any one time. Fourth century AD, you can shove your do up your ass. <laughs> now a walkway... Do- you can put 110,000 Bristol. <laughs> now a walkway... <laughs> directly... <laughs> Man, some reason the room just smells like sausage gravy now and I hate it. Now a walkway directly from the passage connected to the royal boxes in this massive arena. Now, the races would have had up to eight chariots at a time, each pulled by full four horses, and it's believed that these chariot racers were some of the wealthiest athletes ever, far surpassing even today's big-name players. What made the Hippodrome re- a really interesting place, though, were the teams. This shit is fucking insane. Yeah, it's nuts. Absolutely. Dude's talking about sports ball. It makes... It, 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 this is mind-blowing. So, there were... These were f- are also... These are also like the eight wealthiest people in the city, not including the emperor and his wife. That's true. Yeah. I mean, that's not that different from today. 
Now, there were four teams. The Reds, the Whites, the Blues, which were Justinian's team. The Whites, I'm offended. And the Greens. So, for, for the sake hey, of this episode, I'm just going to I'm gonna ask the audience <laughs> to imagine the Greens as ugh, Eagles fans and the Blues as ugh, Cowboys fans, and this will all make sense. That may be the most sports-forward thing we've ever heard you say on the podcast. What podcast did you listen to where they said that? <laughs> we've never seen you, like, watch sports ever. I'm usually too drunk at Pirates games to know what's happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a Pirates game. You should not be so <laughs> The last time you were in the game, I had the weekend of Bernie's you out of that stadium. And <laughs> we did okay. not blend into the crowd. Opening day doesn't matter. He had the right glasses, to be fair. <laughs> that is true. Opening day does not count because it's opening day. So each team had fan bases well into the hundreds of thousands and were each sponsored and supported by a different political party within the Byzantine Senate. They were, however, far more than just groups of team supporters. They were essentially crime families. I mean, think English football hooligans meets so, the Crips meets the Mafia. So this this would be like the Philadelphia Eagles coming in wearing MAGA hats and Dallas, Dallas Stadium being full of Bernie bros. Well, it's basically like if the five families in, in were divided amongst who were Yankees and who were Mets fans. Okay. So, <laughs> yes, thank you, Doug. He's chasing his tail. Yeah. He, he caught it. He caught oh, it. no, yeah. Oh, he holds uh, him in his So while you were, by the way, while Mike was talking about the Corpus Juris Civilis, uh, Vinny decided he wanted to come up and say hi by popping his head up and biting me directly on the balls. <laughs> he and, he and he didn't let go, and I held it together. He was demanding testimony. And I'm very proud of myself. So they handled, and he has become an Ouroboros. So they, they handled the massive amounts of gambling that would take place at the races. They ran smuggling operations. And they would hire themselves out as goons for anything from strike-breaking to political assassinations. They also had a habit of causing literal riots whenever their teams lost. Not, not like chanting in the streets. No, burning shit, smashing shit, killing people. The greens and the yeah, blues. Like, like soccer. They're who, I mean, yeah. They are hooligans. Yeah. It's like, it's like the North of England. when you like, only have one sport. Yeah. It's like the North of England in the 70s. Now, the greens and the blues were by far in the vast majority, and neither team's people were the biggest fans of Justinian. His new laws had put a lot of their more criminal enterprises at risk, and the political parties they were tied to weren't exactly fans of the new law codes either. The greens were also primarily of the religious sects that Justinian's codes sought to outlaw. So after the last race of 531, the Greens and the Blues had caused a riot that had killed quite a few people, and members of both teams' supporters had been arrested and charged and were set to be executed. Now, most were, but two of them escaped, one member of the Blues and one of the Greens, taking sanctuary in a nearby church. Mobs began to gather, egged on by the threats of some of their fan club members, and Justinian, thinking on his feet, declared that the sentences of both men would be commuted to imprisonment and labor. And the races and races would be held on the 13th of January in the name of reconciliation. The crowds dispersed, but still sent missives demanding the total pardons of the escapees. Two weeks went by, with the simmering resentment reaching a boiling point. By the time the day of the races came, the Hippodrome filled with a record number of blues and greens, many of their number bearing rocks, sticks, knives, and clubs. From the moment he entered the royal box, Justinian was jeered and had thousands of angry fans hurling insults at him and Theodora. In Justinian is Santa Claus. The Greens yeah. are Eagles fans. <laughs> now, in between, the Rock is cheering for the races. But soon, the partisan chanting for each team turned into a unified chorus of Nika. Nika, which is Greek for victory or conquer. 
Before the scheduled races even finished, the two teams broke out of the Hippodrome, assaulting the Civil Guards present, beating anybody who got too close whose look they didn't like, and hurling rocks and human feces at the wall of the Royal Palace. Okay, hold on. I'm having kind of a little bit of a Nancy moment here. Um, Nika. Nika meant what? Victory or to conquer. Okay. Because, okay, it's two different definitions. Never mind. Yeah. My bad. It, it had, it has, <laughs> it's one of those ancient terms that sort of has multiple meanings that have all been kind of jumbled into translation over the course of a thousand and a half years. Okay. So they began to filter out throughout the city in their thousands, smashing and looting shops and setting thousands of fires that would meld into massive conflagrations, burning huge swaths of the city. Churches were looted and burned, ships set a fire in the harbor, and members of religious and ethnic minorities lynched and beaten to death. Several thousand were estimated to have died in this spasm of violence that went on for five unending days. The worst rioting ever seen in Constantinople. The Hippodrome became the center point for the rioters, serving as a sort of home base. Now they found and declared Hypatius, nephew of the old emperor Anastasius, as the new true emperor, which was apparently news to Hypatius. And many senators and state officials joined in the effort to depose Justinian. Yeah, apparently the dude was totally surprised. He, he, didn't, didn't. he didn't know. He wasn't there. He was quite literally dragged out of his home going, You're the emperor now! Spoiler alert, he wasn't thrilled about that after the fact. Well, it, it, <laughs> we'll get to that. So, and again, and then this group started to get the backing of senators and state officials in order to depose Justinian. The emperor panicked and considered fleeing through the catacombs and sewers in order to get to a ship to escape. But it was Theodora who stood up and refused to go along, saying, quote, My lords, the present occasion is too serious to allow me to follow the convention that a woman should not speak in a man's council. Those whose interests are threatened by extreme danger should think only of the wisest course of action, not of conventions. In my opinion, flight is not the right course, even if it should bring us to safety. It is impossible for a person, having been born in this world, not to die. But for one who has reigned, it is intolerable to be a fugitive. May I never be deprived of this purple robe, and may I never see the day when those who meet me do not call me Empress. Those who have won this crown should never survive its loss. Never will I see the day when I am not saluted as Augusta. If you wish to save yourself, my, self, my lords, there is no difficulty. We are rich. Over there is the sea, and yonder are the ships. Yet reflect for a moment whether, when you have once escaped to a place of security, you would not gladly exchange such safety for death. As for me, I agree with the adage that royal purple is the noblest funeral shroud. You can file that 100% under things that did not happen. Absolutely. Zero <laughs> percent chance. That's true. That she yeah. said that that was written to emasculate the emperor mm -hmm. by a guy who hated him. Yeah. Now, do I believe that maybe she had a say and like, let's not get out of here. Maybe this thing will shake out. Sure. Well, did she say that and be like, my husband's a little bitch boy. <laughs> and he has a big wet diaper on. Look at his big wet diaper. We're going to stay here, and I'm the one that's telling him how to be a man. Well, I don't even know. I think maybe at one point she might have leaned into Justinian and gone, uh, can't, we all just, can't we just kill them all? I, that's, that was a pretty good plan. Yeah. You knew there were but, five. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's walk this back one more. Who wrote that quote? Who, that would be 
Uh, a gentleman by the name of Procopius. Okay, yeah, he was the one that published that quote. So <laughs> yeah. go ahead and... <laughs> yeah. As, as we've said before. If she it's had... a great quote, but... Yeah. Let's say, okay, uh, if you've ever been in a building where the fire alarm went off, nobody has ever stood up and said, Gentle folks, lend me your ears. We shall not, we shall not trample one another, but we shall help the lesser of us to escape now so that as the building burns, so will our soul with the heroism. (laughs) No, that doesn't happen. Everybody's like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Well, I mean, either way, she probably stood up in some way and said, fuck you, I'm not going. Yeah, I'm sure she was like, I'm not going back to being poor. Because being yeah. poor is stupid. It's yeah, but if she, I'm if, poor. It if, sucks. If she if she just said it that way, you know there was one guy right underneath her going, hey, didn't you give me a mouth hug a couple years ago? <laughs> Uh, I mean, granted, we also know that looking back in history, Spartacus probably never said, I am Spartacus, because everybody knew he was fucking Spartacus. Yeah, everybody knew who the guy was. But it does make for a much more fun story. Right. So, they did make that decision not to run, and a plan was formed. And the onus fell on the eunuch Narses, who was given a bag of gold and, by himself, snuck alone and unharmed into the Hippodrome and found the leaders of the Blue Faction. Hey, you Cowboys fans, you do remember all those fuckers like the Eagles, right? Yeah. (laughs) Now, using bribery and a helpful reminder that Justinian was indeed a Blues fan, and Hypatius a fan of the Greens, he turned them. And the next day, during what was supposed to be Hypatius' coronation ceremony in front of tens of thousands of filthy, exhausted rioters, no less, thousands of the Blues just up and walked out. En masse leaving the Greens stunned and unsure of what to do. Using the distraction of the ceremony, Justinian had commanded Belisarius to gather thousands of soldiers who then stormed the Hippodrome and set about the work of slaughter, killing anyone who remained within indiscriminately. Blue or green, man, woman, or child. It's reported that some 30,000 people were cut down in the span of hours, and Hypatius publicly tortured and executed. The damage, however had been done. Almost half of Constantinople was a charred ruin. Blood ran in the gutters for days, and Justinian was now clearly a leader to be feared rather than loved. Out of all this destruction, though, came some beauty. Knowing that his legacy of violence would need to be tempered with more constructive acts, Justinian looked out at the swathes of the city that lay gone and saw potential. Using a huge amount of public funds at his disposal, Justinian hired all of the empire's finest architects and builders and began to commission not only a massive program of public works like cisterns, aqueducts, and port facilities, but a series of new exquisite churches to replace those that were destroyed by the riots. First among them had been the finest of Constantinople's old churches, the Church of the Holy Wisdom, or in Greek, Hagia Sophia. The entire precinct of the old church was gone, but in its place, built in a process that would take thousands of masons, artists, and carpenters more than five years to finish, rose one of the crown jewels of ecclesiastical architecture throughout all of history. Longer than a football field in length, and nearly as much in width, archways and colonnades filling a massive space, rising to a dome over 100 feet across that sits 18 stories above the ground. Covered in exquisite carved stone, brick, and marble, the new cathedral at Hagia Sophia would remain the largest cathedral in the world for, over a, for nearly a thousand years and still stands today as a monument to Constantinople and or Istanbul's remarkable history. The amount of times that city has been conquered, that is a structure that has never been touched. 
It's also the reason why uh, mosques and synagogues have domes on top. Mm -hmm. It was the first one. So it set the standard. Yep. Everyone after that is mm. it's to pay respect to the grandeur of that building. It was an architectural wonder. It, it, I still mean, is. It, it still is. Possible. It was ten thousand laborers building over five years. And see, I see. I missed all this. I gotta. I gotta apologize. I looked up big dumb Sophia, and all I kept seeing was Joe Mangianello's wife. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, anyway, god damn it. Proud Yenzer, he's probably been yeah. in that bar in the Palazzo. Is Pittsburgh the only city in the world where people go far and wide to go to a bar that has like Pittsburgh stuff? Uh, Cowboys. Mm -hmm. The Cowboys. The Cowboys are the only. I don't think so. I'm not just talking about Steelers. I'm talking about Pittsburgh themed establishments. Mm. Maybe like Green Bay because a bunch of people. Well, no, the, yeah. the, the Dallas Cowboys. I, well, the, the Dallas Cowboys have international bars. I found a Dallas I, Cowboys I, bar in Scotland. I can speak for having lived in Central Virginia for well over 10 years. Mm -hmm. The one nice thing about having a relatively Pittsburgh-themed bar was the fact that you could go in there and did feel like you were sitting on the North Shore yeah. for you know for a couple hours it was yeah but there's a difference between walking into a steeler bar in virginia and walking to one on the fucking palazzo right exactly <laughs> I mean, so and again i was yeah. living there i'd get homesick and i could that is true so now that rebellious uh, elements at home had been wiped out justinian knew that he had an opportunity with tens of thousands of newly trained and well-supplied soldiers as well as hundreds of ships and a massive war chest with which to pay for it all to hire thousands of mercenaries to help out as well as buy off potential enemies. Having spent five years now being hailed as the man under whom Rome would be returned to its former glory, Justinian set his sights on reconquering some of the key imperial lands lost to the barbarians over the last couple centuries. The first target was North Africa, the former breadbasket of the old empire and home to Carthage, old Rome's second city. The nation of the Vandals were now in control and making a real go of creating a semi-Romanized ancient state building bathhouses of their own, developing beautiful poetic traditions, and adopting Christianity with zeal. In 533, Justinian got the moment he needed when the Vandal king, who had been an ally to the Byzantines, was overthrown and deposed. He appealed to Justinian for help, and help was sent under the command of Belisarius. A fleet of 600 ships brought some 20,000 Byzantine soldiers and mercenaries, the largest force seen on North African shores in over a century. Landing in what's now Tunisia, they smashed the Vandal army sent to meet them, and within two weeks had captured the African jewel in Rome's crown, Carthage itself, without a fight. The Vandal king, Gelimer, surrendered soon after and was taken back to Constantinople to live out his days in a country estate in central Turkey, causing no more trouble to Justinian, and dying decades later as an old man. I think he stopped and he realized, eh, you know what? That's not so bad. Swell, honestly. Mm -hmm. Not so bad. A rather enforced retirement, but, you know, he seemed happy enough. So you want to send me to a country estate? Now, by the middle of 534, was there a blues bar there? I don't know. I don't know. Now, by the middle of 534, Belisarius's forces had also invaded and captured Sardinia, Corsica, and the Balearic Islands from the Vandal remnants, giving the Byzantine forces further bases far into the Mediterranean. Now, instead of reinstating the king who had appealed to him for help, which was impossible given that he had been murdered when the Byzantines landed in North Africa, the Byzantines set up a military prefecture of their own, giving them not only control of all of North Africa between Egypt and where Algeria and Morocco now meet, but access to all of the massive tracts of arable land along the coast, 
making supply of Justinian's armies that much easier. Conflict with other African groups would continue in the area for decades to come, but it had pretty much been regained for Rome. Now, before the African conquests had even finished, but once it was clear that they were going well, Justinian began to plan for what he hoped would be the defining act of his reign, the reconquering of the heart of the old Roman Empire, Italy itself. If he could retake Rome herself, the Byzantine Empire would be reunited with the spiritual command central of Christianity, and God would be pleased, granting favor to Justinian's eventual goals of bringing Gaul, Spain, Britain, and all the rest of the old territories back into the Roman fold. Now, of course, it wouldn't hurt to have more lucrative lands to tax, either. As events in North Africa were drawing to a close, a dynastic struggle among the Ostrogoth rulers of Italy gave Justinian the inn he was looking for. Using a level of military and logistical sophistication not seen in the lands of the Western Empire since the Great Split, in spring of 535, the Byzantines launched a three-pronged, simultaneous assault on the Ostrogoth lands. An army of 25,000 men pushed west out of the Balkans and began to steadily retake the rich lands of Illyria and Dalmatia, once valuable Roman provinces, reducing Ostrogoth strongholds one by one. Belisarius landed in Sicily with 7,500 men, overrunning the island in a matter of weeks, much like the Allies did in Operation Husky, and beginning an advance into the southern part of Italy proper without delay. Another 25,000 men were landed on what's essentially the heel of the Italian boot, capturing key ports and supply centers. The Ostrogoths were some of the most militarily powerful people in Europe, however, and got their act together quickly, putting up fierce resistance all the way, but they hadn't faced an army like the new Byzantine war machine. And steadily, slowly, they had to give ground. Over the next year and a half, the grinding advance captured town after town, moving north up the Italian mainland. In the summer of 536, Naples fell. Then came the strategic port of Ostia, and finally, with the Ostrogoths having fallen back to the north of the country to regroup, on December 9th, 536, Belisarius and 20,000 troops marched unopposed into Rome itself. Celebration throughout the empire was ecstatic. Constantinople and the Holy See were reunited. Church bells rang out from Syracuse to Alexandria to the Black Sea. Proclamations were made of a Nova Temporae Romani, a new Roman age. A full military triumph procession was held for Justinian, even though he wasn't part of the campaign and the Byzantine armies were still in the field. But though this was a big moment, it wasn't the end of the campaign. The Ostrogoths still hadn't been decisively beaten, and even though Rome was a significant city for them religiously, it wasn't their capital. The Byzantine forces decided that over the winter, which they started to notice was much colder than normal, they would take time to regroup, reinforce, and resupply. Much to their surprise, in February of 537, an Ostrogoth army, 35,000 strong, encircled and besieged Rome, keeping Belisarius and his men trapped for over a year which they were not prepared for. Soon men began to starve and to mutiny. A relief army under Narses was assembled and, and dispatched, arriving in March of 538 and breaking the siege, but it shouldn't have taken that long given the capabilities of the Byzantines. Doesn't make sense. The Byzantines should have been able to steamroll all the way through Europe. They had the military sophistication and the manpower to do it and the logistical machine to back it up, but they just couldn't do it. Why? They couldn't do it because some things were starting to go very, very wrong indeed. Events that would possibly derail all of Justinian's ambitions 
and bring his reign to a crashing ruin. But we will get to those events in episode two of our series on Justinian. Goddamn Thanos. <laughs> Goddamn, another one? Fuck, Kyle. Really? <laughs> Just. So, uh, I, I want to say right now uh, to everybody out there listening, I know we did originally plan on this being a two-part series. Based on the amount of information we have, um, I'm really starting to think this is going to look like a third-parter. Like a three-parter, excuse me. Um, I'm thinking the next episode, however, is going to be absolutely nuts. Uh, because I think our next episode is going to cover two incredible events, world-changing, that basically put together, they create what would be one of the worst times in the history of mankind to be alive. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's it's harder to imagine when things have really been worse for, like, everybody. Yeah. I mean, I, I can think of a couple, but it, it, they're, I can't think of many more than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, so that's part one of our story on Justinian. I mean, like I said, we are covering an awful lot of ground here. Um, and, and we, like I said, we kind of have to do it pretty quick, but in order to just encompass the entire story. But uh, I hope you've enjoyed it, everybody. Gentlemen, so what are, what are your thoughts? <laughs> it's a lot to take in, I know. I mean, the, the man invented the, essentially the system of modern laws that we used to mm-hmm. Like, what more really needs to be said about that? Yeah. There, there are few individuals in the scope of human history who, as sole humans, or, you know, the advisors around them, important people, completely reshape the trajectory of human civilization. And he's yeah. there. It, it, it's, it's absolutely... There's so much. There's so bloody much. And there, there's so much information regarding this man who lived 1,500 years ago. Yeah. We're, we are We are spoiled. We, we really are. are. Because that's that's how important this guy is. And again, I, it wouldn't shock me if the bulk of our listeners have never heard of him. And I joked about the the, the Agia Sevilla, but I, the, the, one of the things that struck me you know, as we were studying this is he had that built by two architects and 10,000 people in five years. And it's still around. To, it's still to, standing. To, one to of the biggest you, news stories of last year was that it got turned back into a mosque proper. Well, yeah, that's that's, uh, to that's starting to be a big issue. I was actually genu- genuinely pissed about that. I was, because I have not yet been able it, to Now, it, admittedly, you can still visit, and now you, what you couldn't do when it was a museum was you can now visit it free of charge. However, you are limited to visiting outside of prayer hours. Yeah. Well, to give it, to give its construction some... some Scope. Mm-hmm. Um, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, yeah, was built with relatively modern technology. Sixteen in the sixteen sixties and sixteen seventies. Right. Yeah, yeah. We, where we had much more sophisticated machinery to build something like this, and we had much more architectural knowledge at that mm-hmm. point. It took thirty-five years. Yeah. The, the Hagia Sophia took five. Yep. Yeah, and there was no. And when the Hagia Sophia was built, there was no history of the building of massive cathedrals. St. Paul's in London, they've been doing it for a few hundred years. They, they invented new architectural pro- methods yeah. to build the structure. It's an, ast- it's an astounding work. But it's also it, it's incredible to me that something that beautiful was born out of something so violent and destructive. In, in it, the, there's, there's a poetry to it that, which I really like. It was also a little like. CYA. 
Yeah. Like, he was definitely trying to get back into the good graces. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, like, I don't know how, how fully romantic it was whenever he was just greasing mm. palms. Yeah. Well, oh, I, taking he, I'm taking he Justinian. He literally built a mega church. Yeah. Well, I'm, <laughs> well, I'm taking Justinian out of the equation. Well, it, I'm talking about it, the church it, itself. It, it, oh, the it, church it, is yeah. it's unbelievably beautiful. Stunning. And what was it that you said earlier, Chris, about uh, the, 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 oh, the, the were... edict where, where, where he's, when he when he talked to the, the architects, it was, hurry up and finish this because I'm getting old? Yeah, he was 50. <laughs> and he said the most important thing was to finish before he died. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, realistically speaking, it, like it's not shocking for these giant, these giant cathedrals to not be finished. Uh, like the the Dom in Cologne was like twelve fifty to fifteen seventy or something. Yeah, like I that. mean a lot yeah. of these structures. Yeah, I mean technically the, the, speaking, the, it's not done. Yeah, the yeah. Duomo in Florence took eighty years. Yeah, to finally finish. But like some of these buildings are so monstrous that they'll never truly be finished. Because like now, if you're repairing something on on one end of the ch- of the church, and that's now your focus, you have to. Yeah. Now, by the time it's done, the other side needs it. Wait, so what? when did he start talking about the Pennsylvania Turnpike? Turnpike, I got two seasons: yeah. construction and winter. The gas uh, pumps even work anymore in this country. But uh, but they finished it. They built it in five yeah. years. It was done. But also, and it was new. <laughs> the the dome they put in it wouldn't be replicated in terms of size. For another eight hundred and fifty years, years. Yeah. it's crazy. It's, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. But I mean, it, there are so many elements of this story that are mind-boggling in terms of just the scale and the grandeur and and all of it and the intrigue, all of it. It's so hard to wrap our heads around and the sheer amount of source material you have. Instead of it is absolutely for me researching this episode, and I'm sure you guys encountered the same thing. It's a double-edged sword. The notes I've put, the There's story so I'm much telling. Stuff is what I have perce- presumed to be the most likely story, hmm. given the variety of sources that all describe one event. Hmm. Well, and, and, and one of the things that I think is interesting is that we know now that uh, we know now that there were um, First Nations people in the, in the Americas while this is going on. We know now that there were Asian people going on. To the people that we are talking about that are involved, Justinian as the the world leader was the world leader. Yeah. It wasn't competing superpowers. It was everything you knew about the world, you knew through the Justinian Empire. Yep. You did not know anything else on the planet. Yeah. So that's, I mean, when we're talking about the scope of things, we're talking about the scope of the known world as it was to these people. And somehow sports fans still fucked everything up. True that. <laughs> wonder, wonder if any of them ever ate a horse turd on video to prove to, to show how happy they were. Some hey, of those hey, green oh, guys. Hey, hey, eagle. <laughs> can you use it in a sentence? I remember the joke used to be, "Can you use that in a sentence?" Yes, the Eagles have never won the Super Bowl. That's changed. So, thirty thousand people murdered uh, horse uh, horse hockey's rookie numbers. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, don't sound so lame right but, now. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yes. Thank you everybody out there so much for listening thank you gentlemen for all your hard research work on part one of this series i know we have a long way to go before we sleep on the rest on the other two parts of this series um i know we were planning for the last year and a half has been pretty good research for part two yeah it's uh yeah we're gonna start to see an awful lot of parallels developing between justinian's time and what's been going on these days and uh you know it's it's a lot of it's gonna start to have these moments of oh Oh, oh, oh boy. 
Yes, but at least it's it, our la- remember our last three parter ended up with people eating Marie calendars and offing themselves with barbiturates. So I don't think we're going to. Oh, so have more this- uh, <laughs> we're not so more parallels call. to the pandemic. <laughs> not doing another. Call. Yeah, I uh, well, if we're going to do a cult, it's going to be one that's a little more fun. Uh, nothing says quirky and fun loving quite like a cult. Well, there there are a lot of cults that are weird and don't involve as much death. Yeah, like the Bob Crane sex cult. Exactly. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you saw me setting up the table for you. Even after all these months, we haven't lost our touch. Have there, we? there, there is one Bob Crane, and I am his prophet. <laughs> is that website still up? Yes, it is. Uh, we I, need to add to it. I see, I to, see you're wearing your tiny little camera it. stand necklace. Oh, absolutely. That's, absolutely. Uh, oh, did, the, uh, did the brands come in yet? Uh, what was that? The brands, did they come in yet? I know we ordered no. them off Etsy. Uh, I'm not sure. I'll have to check. <laughs> uh, you you got to understand, my guy is in Phoenix, so I'll get yeah, back yeah, to him. Um, I, I need to zoom Go on our them website, anyway. trrmerch.com, to order your specialty Bob Crane sex cult cock rings today. <laughs> so, yes, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, I hope you're as intrigued by this story as we have been for quite some time. Um, just, it's so much information. Because we decided about, what, two months ago that we were going to do Justinian? Yeah, it yeah. is still, there's and still I a have, decent amount of process. And, dude, yeah. I have buried, I've been buried under so many sources. Yeah, it's, 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 Don't get me wrong. I love this lot. shit. Yeah, I'm happy yeah. to do it, but wow. Um, and it, it was shocking to me how little I knew about this. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And, like, and, and it's only because like, I, I did a lot of, in college, a lot of stuff on the Romans. Mm-hmm. And the only reason, what, like, even near the end of the Roman Empire, even some of those gloss over him because his name is yeah. Caesar. But it's also interesting because it, the, the Roman Empire of Justinian is so still so much of the same, yet it's so damn different. After the split of the Roman Empire, it's, <laughs> it's totally different. It's Old Testament, New Testament. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the one of the big problems, in fact, it, it, it I, I don't feel bad about it between the four of us because I one of the one of the podcasts that I was listening to just to get see if there was a, any l- little tidbits of information that I could glean from had a PhD mm-hmm. talking about this, and he says the big problem is even masters of history look at this age and they go, okay, world history goes from. It stops at 100 CE and then doesn't pick up again yeah. until Charlemagne. And it's this, yeah, there's just this big gap, void. I mean, this hole. And yet within this void is this whole story. Mm-hmm. And this is just, I mean, this, this is the roots of the, 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 the big old fucking tree. It's nuts. So, uh, yeah, so Chris, if uh, people out there want to uh, get in touch with us, they want to follow us, how can they do that? You can follow us on social media by uh, giving us a quick follow on Twitter at PodcastTRR. On Instagram, we are TRRPod. And if you feel like dropping us a line, hit us up at uh, TRRPod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook if you just simply search uh, These Rogues and Renegades. Uh, and wherever you are enjoying your podcast, please remember to like, review, subscribe, hit all the little buttons that you can at the end because it helps us out quite a bit. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, we're on, uh, I know we're on uh, Stitcher, Google, uh, whatever they're calling Apple Podcasts now because I know it changed. It's again. Apple Podcasts. It, it's, again. Okay, yeah, I know that, like, it, it's still Apple Podcasts. Yeah, they're starting to com- compartmentalize a bunch of stuff, so. Yep. Um, the, only, the only Apple product that I consume right now is Ted Lasso, mm. uh, the best show on television. Uh, it is the most wholesome thing ever, and I can't wait to watch it uh, Thursday at 3 a.m. It is an adorable show. <laughs> um, and also, uh, we mentioned this, compiling all these sources, uh, getting together, this stuff isn't free. Uh, we're happy to do it. We, we love doing it. Um, 
if you uh however you there is a means by which you can absolutely support the stuff we do and that is by going on to uh patreon to uh support us for as little as a buck a month you can gain access to exclusive content some of which we were making today and uh yeah like i said as little as a buck a month all the way up to our ten thousand dollar a month grand poobah level still waiting on that but uh i have faith uh, we need like a, a a pitch for that, like a sales pitch, and, and the best I can come up with is, it's a dollar. Yeah, <laughs> it's a dollar. But every cent that Grand, comes in via the Patreon does go directly back right. into producing this podcast. So Grand Poobah level, I will personally hand make you a merkin. Oh God, that's that not that's no. not in our terms and conditions. Anything that happens outside of the Poobah level is between uh the is, patron and Padre. <laughs> it's made out of Chris's beard, though, so that's <laughs> Chris's the, beard leaving. Stay the hell away from my beard. <laughs> Honestly, I have a lot of cat hair from when I comb those fuckers. So, uh, yes, but you can find you can go support us on uh, at www.patreon.com/trrpod. And thank you to all of our supporters out there, and thank you to all of our future supporters. It's a dollar. Yeah, <laughs> it's a dollar. It's a dollar. Do it. Yes, and most importantly, before we wrap up today, I think the biggest thank you we have to say is to everybody who kind of waited while, yes. uh, while we were, you know, life got super, super weird for a while, and, uh, you know, we did the best we could. We, got, we, we, we hit the restart button as soon as this was practical, wow. and, and we're finally here. We're finally back. I'm finally sitting here talking history and drinking beer with my boys. I'm really, really happy about that fact. I'll say that. The same. Good to be back in the kitchen. And yeah. uh, and and we're really really glad that you stuck with us through that break, and that you're here on the other side of it. Things are going to start coming thick and fast. Well, at least in our cases, thick anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, the fast thing. <laughs> That'd be ridiculous. Because uh, I don't know, Kyle's. I don't know, Kyle's pretty lean. He's 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 got those strong legs. He's pretty quick. I think the rest of us are I did. not exactly fast. Did you sign up for the you, you stupid fucking idiot. So, uh. <laughs> you know what happened to the first guy? He died. <laughs> we'll just get you a German coach to punch you oh, right in the ass. That's only for equestrian sports. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That is true. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll catch you next time, everybody, uh, for Justinian the first, part the second. Justinian the first, second. Yeah. Justinian 1.2. Is that what we're, we're calling it? And then following up with Justinian 1.3? You'd figure, since we had you know a year yeah. and a half for me to figure this out, I would have had a snappy title already. But <laughs> Shit. So Justinian Part 2, the beta version? Is the that ever done? I don't know. Yeah, anyway. Don't but, say beta. You'll piss off Aubrey Huff. Yeah, that's not, he, he ain't on Twitter anymore. So like, <laughs> has he, has he, has he moved on from declaring, him, from, to declaring himself a Sigma male, or is he still an alpha? Uh, he's still an alpha. Yeah. Still an, I mean, I guess so, because he, he got kicked <laughs> on Twitter. I mean, I just think it's going to be really funny when he overdoses on heart, on horse dewormer. But it's uh, it's an alpha move, bro. It's an alpha move. It's an alpha. Move. It really is. All right, everybody. Thank you again so much for listening. From all the boys here, I'm Rob North. I'm Michael Lernett. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. Kyle Graver. And uh, you are our favorite people in the world. We'll catch you next time. Hold fast, everybody. Hold fast, everybody.